Hey, it's Martine. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we have the Post's advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, coming back to Post Reports. You might remember hearing her on the show a few months ago, answering your questions about the pandemic. It was great. So we're doing it again. And this time, we want questions related to the holidays. Questions like how to navigate awkward tension with your in-laws, or whether you actually need to buy an expensive Christmas gift for your spoiled nephew, or how soon is too soon to invite your new boo to Hanukkah dinner. Whatever your predicament, Carolyn will have advice. Send us your questions by recording a short voice memo on your phone and emailing it to postreports at washpost.com. We can't wait to hear it and enjoy the show. For months, one of our investigative reporters, Debbie Sensifer, has been looking into a contentious program run by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It's called 287G. ICE empowers local sheriffs and their deputies to report and investigate and detain undocumented immigrants who are brought into local jails on unrelated charges, ranging from misdemeanors to felonies to driving offenses. Debbie and The Post have managed to obtain dozens of internal emails from ICE. They reveal how, in recent years, the federal agency has aggressively recruited and communicated with sheriffs in the program. What I was mostly interested in is not writing about the ins and outs of this contentious program, because that had been reported before, but really learning more about the backgrounds of the sheriffs who are, you know, the most vocal advocates of this program. And what I found most surprising is that some of the sheriffs empowered by the federal government with enforcement authority, the power to investigate and detain undocumented immigrants, had made very public statements, some might call them bombastic statements, about their views on immigration policy. Illegal immigrants are creating public health hazards, public safety concerns, living in homes, one-room apartments with three families, taking mattresses off the streets that are infested with bed bugs. If you're not in this country illegally, you have to go. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 1st. Today, how the Trump administration aggressively recruited sheriffs to detain immigrants. And later in the show, how the new Republic of Barbados signals a change for the British crown. So as Debbie has been looking into this 287G program that empowers local sheriffs, she discovered that the way this program has been used has really evolved over the years. Early on, ICE promised that this program would only be used to look for serious offenders, not people who were brought in on driving infractions, not people who were brought in on lower-level offenses, misdemeanors, petty theft trespassing, things like that. But early on, immigration advocates, uh, civil rights groups, lawyers, academics, all found that a number of sheriffs were basically using this program as kind of a way to dragnet 
undocumented people, to bring them into this process, to basically conduct raids, to have traffic stops, to pull over people on the street. And then once they were ensnared into this program, they would be reported to ICE and potentially deported. Interesting. So from your reporting, you get the sense that there are questions that the way this program is being used now by sheriffs is not in the spirit of how it was designed originally, and that sheriffs are using this in some ways to enact a agenda that is very explicitly anti-immigration. That's what immigration advocates will tell you. And they back that premise up with data. I mean, the data in this program has for years shown that many, many people who are brought in under 287G are being brought in for lower-level offenses, driving infractions, for example. And I'm not talking about drunk driving, which is a pretty serious uh, driving offense. I'm talking about basic driving infractions. Like broken taillight stuff or... Exactly. What is the difference between a police department and a sheriff's department? Sheriffs are elected, first of all. Some of them have been in office for years and years and years. So unlike most police chiefs, which, you know, tend to come and go, a sheriff is an elected official. A sheriff is a politician. So they're Republicans, they're Democrats, they they run political campaigns. And sheriff's departments generally serve warrants and they run local jails. So police departments don't run local jails. Sheriff's departments do. And that matters because the 287G program is a jail-based program, right? Enforcement authority doesn't kick in until someone is sitting in a jail having been arrested for another offense. And for ICE and for the people in charge of this agency, what was their rationale for, for putting this program in place? ICE calls it a force multiplier. That's that's ICE's term. It's a way to strengthen immigration enforcement in the United States. And the sheriffs who participate, you know, really do see this as a public safety measure. They see it as a way to screen people who are in their jails to see if they're here, you know, illegally, to see if they're undocumented, and then to report them to ICE and then leave the rest to ICE. And so they really see it as a way to be sure that if someone who is undocumented commits a crime or, you know, an alleged offense and they're brought into jail, that they're not released back into the community on bond if they are wanted by ICE, essentially. So I want to hear more about the sheriffs who have really taken on these powers as part of this program and kind of run with them. Who are these sheriffs and what are their reputations? Why have they become such a big part of this program? I mean, one thing that I think is important for everyone to know is that a majority of sheriffs in the country do not participate in the 287G program. That doesn't mean that they're not cooperating with ICE in other ways, but the majority of them don't participate. It's such a contentious program. Entire campaigns have been based on whether or not the candidate supports 287G or not in states like Georgia and North Carolina. And so I really do think a number of sheriffs in this program truly believe it's a screening process to root out people who are potentially dangerous. And it's it's hard to argue against public safety. It really is. But there are also some sheriffs in this program who have been out on the front lines, particularly in the last few years under the Trump administration, that have made very clear that they believe that the U.S. immigration laws are way too liberal. 
They, they want no enforcement whatsoever. They don't want the immigration enforcement program. They don't like me because I've implemented it. They don't like me because I stand for what I stand for. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm a conservative guy, but, I, but I'm a law and order guy. One of the sheriffs that we featured in the story is Chuck Jenkins, who's the longtime sheriff of Frederick County here in Maryland. And he's been one of the most vocal supporters of this program. And I believe in my heart of hearts that, that this is a public safety benefit to the, to the country, to the county, to the community. And like other sheriffs, he believes that it is a screening process to root out violent offenders. Our partnership very simply does not allow illegal aliens who commit crimes to be released back onto our streets to commit more and more serious crimes. But Chuck Jenkins has also been very vocal about his views about undocumented immigrants. All of America has been done a great injustice by not enforcing our immigration laws, allowing our wide open borders, and being forced as a nation to tolerate lawlessness of illegal immigration. When you are then empowered with federal and immigration enforcement authority, is there a kind of a conflict there, you know, that, that, that ICE has empowered sheriffs like you and dozens and dozens of others who kind of have pretty, you know, firm beliefs about these issues? No, I, I don't believe there is because, uh, again, I, I think, I mean, no, I don't believe there's a conflict. I'm no different than any other elected official who has a belief or an ideology and strong Okay, so I'm in a position that I can take actions to uh, carry through on some of the things that I believe in. And I believe it as strongly right now as I ever did, probably more so, because I truly believe that what's going on in this border, at the border, by, by, by basically opening the borders, there's no interior enforcement of our immigration laws. We will soon lose what we have as a country. We found emails, internal emails from ICE that showed in 2016 the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties inside Homeland Security recommended not renewing his 287G agreement because of some of the public comments he has made that, according to the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties people, uh, put the program in a, in a bad light. ICE went ahead and renewed his agreement anyway. So he's been a a long-standing ICE partner under 287G. It's not easy. I mean, I'm driving now for a living. That's how I do. I do leave and I live in groceries. So. We were able to interview an undocumented father of two in Frederick County who was once deported under the 287G program. Uh, anytime I see a patrol behind me, it's like, uh, even if I know I didn't do anything wrong, I don't feel safe. This man was was brought in for what some might call a lower level arrest, a driving infraction. Yeah, it's a two way stop there because I mean, you gotta stop before you turn, then you gotta come a little bit further so you can see the oncoming traffic. Right. And I'm hundred percent sure I do the stop, but the cop I guess didn't see me because he was parking on the apartments. And he was ultimately detained, reported to ICE. In fact, he left voluntarily because he knew the deportation process was so time-consuming. He left voluntarily, you know, with every intention of returning because his family was here in Frederick County. Yeah, I remember the day that I leave 
from here to Mexico, I gotta take my son to school. He was in middle school. But I said, I gotta go, there's no point for you to stay home, you gotta keep studying. When you got back to Frederick, how long had it been since you seen, seen your wife and kid? Two months. I spent two months in Mexico. And what was that like for you? Did you walk in? Did you ring the doorbell? What was that like? I know that's a tough question. I know. Yeah, it was amazing to see my kids. You said that for a lot of sheriffs who participate in this program, especially sheriffs who are elected, that this is a big part of what gets them elected, is that people in their communities believe that this program does make them safer. And I'm wondering, what were some of the conversations that you've heard from from people who live in places that have uh, this program in place that they say, we feel really good about having sheriffs with this power to be able to question undocumented immigrants in this way? What immigration groups and civil rights lawyers say is that you don't need this particular program to make communities safer. If the police and the sheriff's departments are doing their jobs, they are catching criminals anyway and holding criminals anyway, and that there doesn't need to be a separate, second legal process for people who who are here without legal citizenship, that if we are doing a good job in this country policing our streets, that serious criminals would be picked up anyway. And and they also say this program does not make communities safer. In fact, it's just the opposite, because when your local law enforcement are aligned with ICE, the fear is that people in immigrant communities will not report crimes. They will not report domestic violence. They will not go to the hospital when they're injured. They're fearful of the very people who are supposed to protect them. And that actually creates unsafe communities. So then what does ICE have to say about some of these concerns that are raised that this program can cause a more dangerous situation, especially for undocumented immigrants, and that there are questionable practices or instances of potential abuse. ICE stands by this program. I spoke to ICE uh, for the reporting of this story. So I spoke to ICE, you know, under the Biden administration. ICE says there is no tolerance for discriminatory policing or racial profiling, and that they will remove sheriff partners who they believe are doing that. But honestly, in so many years under this program, that has very rarely happened. In fact, in all of 2021, only one sheriff was removed from this program. His name is Tom Hodgson in Bristol County, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And that was only after Sheriff Hodgson's deputies reportedly used excessive force on immigrant detainees in the local detention center. You know, flashbang grenades and canine units and others. So it was only after this very high-profile use of force in the detention center that the Department of Homeland Security cut ties with that sheriff. Right. I've heard about that case, and I should add that he says that his officers acted appropriately. But I do want to ask about President Biden. As you said, this program expanded under President Trump. So have we seen whether Biden will take a different approach? You know, I don't have a sense of that. I did reach out to the Biden administration, did not receive a response. But 
this year, the Biden administration, through all kinds of uh, policy changes, dramatically reduced the number of deportations and the number of interior arrests in the United States. So the administration has, in many ways, weakened this program because people aren't being deported as often as they were under prior administrations. And so if people aren't being deported, that means that even though people might be detained under this program, they're not being deported because the policies have changed under the Biden administration. Immigration groups want to see the administration take that final step and just eliminate this program altogether. They see it as a vestige of prior administrations. It is no longer needed. It hasn't been wanted in a number of years. And that just having this program on the books, even if at the end result has changed, meaning people aren't being deported, but just having this program on the books still instills a tremendous amount of fear in immigrant communities, and they want to see uh, this program gone for good. What is your big takeaway of all this reporting? One of my big takeaways is that there's been a lot of focus in this country on police reform and police accountability of police departments and racial profiling and excessive use of force, but not a lot of talk about sheriffs and about sheriff's departments and about elected sheriffs and who holds sheriffs accountable for the things they say and the things they do. What kind of oversight is there at that level at local law enforcement? And I, I was surprised to find that really there hasn't been the kind of scrutiny there that I think policymakers and lawmakers and journalists have given in recent years to police departments. Debbie Sensiper is an investigative reporter for The Post. Madison Muller contributed additional reporting. This story was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon. After the break, we've got one more thing about the new Republic of Barbados. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We, the people of Barbados, in unity of hearts, hands and minds, now pledge ourselves, our commitment, loyalty, and purpose to this, our beloved Barbados. Guided by the Almighty, we honor our history, our ancestors, our forefathers, the architects... Earlier this week, Barbados officially became a republic, removing the Queen of England as the head of state. Now, the move is symbolic because it ushered in a new era with the swearing-in of the island's first ever president, almost 400 years since Barbados became an English colony. Jennifer Hassan is a breaking news reporter based in London, and she's been covering this transition. And with firm resolve and in one voice, from this day and forever, declare Barbados 
a parliamentary republic. At the celebrations this week in Barbados, there was a speech from the new president. For decades, we have had discourse and debate about the transition of Barbados to a republic. Today, debate and discourse have become action. There was an appearance by Rihanna as a national hero. I'm so proud to be a Bajan. I'm going to be a Bajan till the day I die. This is still the only place I've ever called home. And Prince Charles was there, essentially saying goodbye to his family's role as this country's head of state. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. The British royal family has been pretty positive about this change. Barbados will still be a part of the Commonwealth, this political network of countries that support one another. But at the same time, other countries are also in the middle of reassessing their relationship to the British crown. When thinking about other Commonwealth countries and whether or not they will follow Barbados's lead, there's definitely an active movement in Australia at the moment and also in Jamaica, where polls have indicated that people are still divided, but there are definitely mixed feelings about the monarchy. Now, the Jamaican government and the people of Jamaica may feel more inspired now that Barbados has finally distanced itself completely and severed ties with the monarchy. And both of Jamaica's main political parties actually do support cutting ties with the monarchy completely. So it is looking likely that Barbados won't be the last country to make this decision. The announcement that Barbados would become a republic first came in September of 2020. And when it happened, it got a lot of attention because it happened in the middle of this moment of racial reckoning that went beyond the United States, as more people were thinking about what justice and atonement for slavery could look like in other countries. On a rain-soaked night 55 years ago, the inhabitants of what had been the world's first slave society shed the mantle of colonialism to become an independent nation. Vessel independent Barbados weighed anchor and cast off from our colonial moorings. Unable to see the future, we embarked on the journey of nationhood with no clear knowledge of our strength and capabilities or our potential as a people. Many colonies are now starting to make demands and request compensation over what they own and the atrocities um, that their ancestors experienced. Earlier this year, Jamaica announced that it was preparing to request compensation from Britain over its role in the transatlantic slave trade, which spanned the 17th and 18th centuries. These big questions about reparations and justice and reckoning are happening at a time when the British royal family is facing its own transition. The Queen is 95. She's been in poor health recently. And someday in the not-distant future, her son will become king. People also looking at that as a moment of, what does the monarchy mean? And and do we need a monarchy? And, you know, the Queen is, is very much favoured in the UK and in other countries, but Charles not so much. 
So it's kind of that moment where people are not just sort of questioning the Commonwealth and what, what does that mean? And, you know, reparations and complex histories. It's also like, do we need a monarchy? What do they do? It's just, it's opened up that whole debate about the existence of Britain's monarchy as well. And I think while some of these countries have stayed, you know, in the Commonwealth with the Queen as head of state, once Charles takes to the throne and he takes over the Commonwealth, that could also propel other countries to, you know, reevaluate, reassess the situation. Jennifer Hassan is a breaking news reporter in London. The story was produced by Lena Mohammed. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. Tomorrow and Friday, I will be off, so you will have a guest host, our producer, Jordan Murray Smith. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.